We turn to God's Word, we turn to our Bibles, and once more to the first chapter of Genesis, the first chapter of the Bible. It's on the second page. I'm sure we can find it quite, quite easily. I'm going to read from chapter 1, verse 26, just those two verses, and then go on into chapter 2. So Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. And then God said, and this is on the sixth day of creation, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That is the first account we have of the creation of man uh, in Genesis. We then have a second account, which uh, begins, uh, or really it continues in chapter 2 and verse 18. It, uh, it starts earlier on, but in verse 18 we read particularly about the creation of the woman. So chapter 2 and verse 18, Then the Lord said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground... The Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. When God does something, he does it for a reason. He does it purposefully. He does it deliberately. Maybe we're not always like that, are we? We do things at random. We do things on a whim. We do things because it just kind of takes our fancy. We've got no idea why we're doing it, but we do it anyway. But there's nothing random about what our Creator God does. He's wise and purposeful, 
And when he created the human race, he created them male and female. And we're told this right at the beginning. It's most important. We are looking at the very foundations of what it means to be human. And notice how here in verse 27, what is particularly stressed, chapter 1 verse 27, is the image of God in man. What are we as human beings? We are the image of God. We are like God. Unlike any other creature, we are made in the image of God. It is repeated. You see it twice in verse 26. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. And then it goes on to say, male and female, he created them. Now I want us this morning to really zoom in on this whole question of the image of God. God, especially as it relates to male and female, carrying on from where we left off last Sunday morning. And we see this morning three images, or maybe I should say three imagings. Nowadays, lots of, lots of nouns are turned into verbs, aren't they? Uh, you can image things. Uh, you can take an image, you can process an image, you can image something. Well, we have three imagings that are going on in this passage. First of all, the nature of God is imaged in male and female. And the statement here in verse 27 that man is male and female is no mere detail, is no secondary consideration, is no afterthought, that we can file away in the back of our minds and forget about and say, well, it's somewhere down the list of priorities. That's not true at all. It's absolutely primary and central to our whole human nature that we are male and female. What is the first thing that we learn about the image of God in the Bible? It's precisely this that we are male and female. I'll put it as simply as I possibly can. God did not make a world in which every person was male or in which every person was female. Imagine if he had. It would be a rather less colorful world in all sorts of ways. I suppose God, if he had chosen, could have made a world in which everybody was the same, either male or female. How that would have worked out in terms of how the species would have uh, propagated is another matter. But we're not thinking about that this morning. This is the question. Why did God make this human race that we all belong to? Why did he make them male and female. Here's the answer. It's so that God's own nature, God's own rich, full character, might in some wonderful way be exhibited and demonstrated in us 
as male and female. If God had made the human race only male, it would have been an inadequate display of his image in us. If God had made us only female, that too would have been an inadequate display of his image. Maleness, masculinity, is a reflection of God's image. And no less is femaleness, femininity, part of God's image, an aspect of the very character of God. Let's be clear about that. The Bible always talks of God as he. Nowhere do we ever find in the Bible that people address God as she or as a goddess or as heavenly mother or something like that. That never happens. But we must say this. Female characteristics, if I can use that expression, are as much God's image as male characteristics. But we particularly see this. God shows the fullness and richness of his image in the complementary natures of people as male and female together. Male and female in community together. Now, I use this word complementary, not complementary, but complementary with an E. What does that mean? We mean that male and female pair together ideally. That with male and female, there is a completeness which would not be there if everyone was male or if everyone was female. We mean that with male and female, there is that perfect fit, like the hand in the glove, the foot in the shoe. God himself says here in chapter 2 and verse 18, there's, there's something lacking in this world when there is only one sex, only one gender there. It is not good that the man should be alone. It's not complete that there should be only male and not female in this world. I will make a helper fit for him. And let me just explain. This is not simply a statement about marriage. It includes that, but it's a bigger and broader picture than that. This is a statement about human beings and human society as male and female. A world in which there are males and no females is incomplete. It's not good. There's something lacking, which can only be put right when the female is made with the male to live in this world. It's complementary. And there are plenty of examples of complementarity, aren't there, that we can see in the world around us. Take, for example, interior design. I've got about that much idea about interior design, but some of you really get it. And you know that certain colors in a house, a certain color scheme of uh, wallpaper and furniture and so on, they go together well. There is a harmony there. It's pleasing to the eye. I speak of harmony and we can think of music. Two notes 
played at the same time could be clashing, couldn't they? Or they could be in beautiful harmony. The same with two instruments. Some instruments paired together go especially well. There is a complementarity about them. And a chef will know that there are certain flavors that really go well together. That the taste of the sauce goes with and complements the taste of the meat or whatever it might be. When God made the human race, he chose to create us as male and female. Why? Because he loves complementarity. Why? Because it's part of his own wonderful, multidimensional nature. Our God is a great God, a wise God, a God who far exceeds our own understanding and imaginations. Our God loves diversity. Our God loves beauty. Our God loves harmony. Our God loves to display the breadth and range of his own nature, his own multidimensional character. He does it in that he made a vast range of different human beings, but in particular at the beginning, he made them male and female. You imagine a meal that is all savory and no sweet, no variation of flavor. Or you imagine a song that is all pure melody in unison with, with no harmony, with, with no backing track, with no variation of tone or instrumentation there. Or you imagine a home where every wall and every door and every ceiling is just good old magnolia with no variation and no subtlety and no tones of any kind. They're lacking in something. An overly male and only male environment, a kind of hyper top gear environment for this world all the time, Clarkson all over the place. A very male environment would be lacking something, would need a woman's touch, would it not, men and women? And vice versa. I can't think of the female equivalent of top gear. I wouldn't dare to suggest what it might be. But something like that surely exists. That would need male input. God's design for humanity is male and female together. Let me come to another point, which we really see when we go back another verse. And I've mentioned this before. My second image or imaging. The triune God... The God who is Father, Son, and Spirit is imaged in human community. And I've made this point before. Go back to verse 26 of chapter 1. And the words of God, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. These words, us and our, they are plural. They are many. God does not say, let me make man in my image. Or I will make man in my image. Or simply, let there be man. 
It doesn't say, let there be man. He could have done, couldn't he? Like he says, let there be light. But he doesn't say, let there be man. He says, let us make man. Who's the us? Who's the we? Who's the plural? Well, for centuries and centuries, the majority of careful scholars have understood that here is nothing other than the tripersonal God. Father, Son, and Spirit, speaking together, holding counsel together. Why? Because this is the very nature of God. What is distinct and unique about our God compared to the gods of other religions, other faiths? Well, many things, but this is one in particular. Our God is three persons in community, in society, in relationship. And because our God is what we might call a communal God, he creates a human race that is communal and relational. You and I are social beings, communal beings. We're not made to be solitary. And this is true and important even before we come to think about man as male and female. I remember at Zonian a couple of years ago, I played a song to the Zonian group by Simon and Garfunkel. They go back a bit, don't they? We're going back to the mid to late 1960s. I think Pete was there, and we played this song, I am a rock, I am an island. It's about a man who lives entirely alone, in his flat, in his bedsit perhaps, cut off from all human company. And he says things like this, I touch no one and no one touches me. I am cut off, I'm sealed off, I'm isolated. I live entirely alone with no relationships, with no society, with nothing of that kind. And he ends with these words, And a rock feels no pain, and an island never cries. But of course, those words are ironic. They're not actually true. It's a mournful song. It's a tragic song. He doesn't mean them. He's crying out for company. He's crying out for friendship, because we all do. The God who is community creates a human race that thrives in community. Brothers and sisters and friends, that's why you and me being here today is the best place we can be, because we are in community. We are in the best community that there is on earth, the community of the people of God that God calls to himself through Jesus Christ. Let me make this point, though. One expression of community One very precious one is friendship, isn't it? When we make friends, when we sustain friendships, when those friendships deepen and develop, we are imaging the triune God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit united together in, as we might say, the very deepest friendship of all. Deep, strong, healthy, valuable friendships 
can exist between two peoples, two people of the same sex. And the classic biblical example that you may think of straight away would be that of King David before he was king and Jonathan, who was the king's son, Saul's son. And they should have been sworn enemies, but they weren't. They were the closest of friends. And straight after we read of David slaying Goliath, we read these words. As soon as David had finished speaking to King Saul, the soul of Jonathan, the son of Saul, was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took David that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. There was a strong, powerful bond of friendship and, yes, love between the souls of these two men. And what we surely see here, and we need this in today's culture more than ever, we have a rich, positive encouragement for people of the same sex to cultivate deep, close friendships. Now what's happened in recent years, as you might well expect, is that many scholars have looked at David and Jonathan and have said, well, of course, it was more than friendship. It was more than their souls being knit together. There was another aspect to it. It was, it was romantic. It was even sexual. But there is in the word of God not a shred of evidence to support that argument. There can there should be, we should encourage friendships of warm affection, companionship, even love. For love is a rich, deep, broad thing. There should be loving friendships between two and more people of the same sex. If there were more of that kind of friendship, it would be for the good of the society it would also be for the good of many churches. And let me make this point. It seems to me, from my own observations, that many people who express same-sex attraction have really been looking for deep friendship with someone of the same sex because they've never known that kind of friendship before, or their relationship with their parent of that same sex may well not be as close as it could have been. That sometimes happens. The trouble is that in a fallen world, in a society that encourages a view of sex which is far, far removed from the biblical understanding, deep friendships more easily cross the threshold into sexual relationships. Now how does all this tie in with what we're saying from God's word? At the ultimate level, in God's purpose and design 
a same-sex relationship which is romantic, physical in that sense, is incompatible. It cannot, it does not provide the complementarity that we've been talking about, that God has implanted in the human race in creating us male and female. That's where we must take our stand as Christians on this whole vexed, controversial question of same-sex, physical, sexual relationships. We go back to the beginning. We go back to the Word of God. We speak to people with tenderness, with patience, with understanding. We don't hector them. We don't argue with them. But we need to know that we take our stand in the Word of God. But let me now tie all this together in my final point and come to the third imaging that we see here. It's this. Christ and the church are imaged in marriage. Jesus Christ and the church, his people, believers, that relationship is imaged in human marriage. Let me sum up what we've said so far. Our great God, in his community, in his own multi-personal diversity, in his infinite, broad, high, wide, and deep character, reflects that character in creating a human race of complementarity, of harmony, especially of male and female. And then the whole human race was created to be that community by the God who is himself community. And as we come to the final verses of chapter 2 from verse 18 to verse 25, what we see expressed here so beautifully is the ultimate expression of human community and companionship. And that is marriage. Marriage between the first man and the first woman. The first marriage of all is here in Genesis 2, 18 to 25. This defines marriage. But I want to make this added point. This marriage is the image of the greater and greatest marriage of all, which is between Jesus Christ and his people. That's ultimate. That has priority. That's infinite. That never comes to an end. That's perfect. Human marriage is the image of that. Now let's look for a few moments at this marriage and at the creation of the woman. How was the woman created? This is so important for us to understand. Notice back in verse 7 of chapter 2 that the Lord God formed the man, first of all, from the dust of the ground. He made him separately. How did he make the woman? Did he make her from the dust of the ground as well? 
in the same sort of way with a few little differences, but by and large the same process, the same sort of creation. No, no, this is so important. The woman was made from the man. I need to just add at this point, in case some of you are thinking, I love the poetry of Genesis. I I love the imagery of Genesis. I love the uh, hidden meanings of marriage that this preacher is speaking about. I mean, I'm sure he doesn't take it literally. No one does these days. But I love the kind of, uh, uh, the, the subtle meanings that are here, although he doesn't take it literally. I need to explain, I do take it literally. I take it literally. Because if you go through the whole scripture, you see, particularly in Romans 5, that the whole idea that man came as some eventual evolutionary product from a blind process is utterly incompatible with the idea of man being made and created once, first of all, in the image of God. So what do we say about this? The woman was made from the man. She was part of the man. And then she was brought back to the man. And that's why in the one flesh union, which is described in these verses, in the holding fast that we see in, uh, where is it now? Therefore, verse 24, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. What was this? This was the woman coming home. This was the woman coming home to the man from whom she was created. The two becoming one. The highest, deepest, and best human sense of community, companionship, mutual delight, openness, intimacy. In short, here is human love at its richest. I have a question for you. A question that's been asked, I'm sure, billions of times down the centuries. A question that many songs have asked for many years. What is love? What is love? I'm sure many of you are thinking of lyrics where those words appear and then you can sing on from there, whatever era or vintage you might be from. What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. That's what I'm thinking of. I don't know why I thought of that, but it just came to my, it came to my mind. There's others I could have thought of too. But what is love? I'll give you an answer. I think this is the best answer. This is Carl Truman's answer, Carl Truman over in the States. Love is the desire to be united with the one who is loved. Love is the desire to be united with the one who is loved. There is no simpler but richer definition of love than that. And while we're thinking about human marriage, what is marriage designed to be? 
It's designed by God to be that union, that uniting of minds and souls and hearts and lives and experiences. And this is the added dimension that God gives only in marriage between a man and a woman. It is a union of bodies as well. A union that is in keeping with the complementary natures of men and women. A union that God sets his seal of blessing on through the giving of children. That is marriage. God created it. But I'm not finished yet. Because what have I said already? Marriage is only the image of an even greater love, a greater union than the marriage between a man and a woman. I'm talking about the union of Jesus Christ with his people, the church, believers. And this is ultimate. And this is lasting. And this is eternal. And this is perfect. And this, however old or young you are, whatever your life may have contained or may yet contain in terms of all sorts of relationships, this is the highest joy and bliss that humanity can ever attain to. I'll put it like this. Human marriages, even the very best and happiest of them all, have their rocky periods. No human marriage ever attains the ideal. Many marriages end in separation or divorce. Many marriages, tragically, are ruined through adultery and unfaithfulness. Many people never get married. And even those who do, for them, every marriage has a clause, till death us do part, which means that that marriage comes to an end. You might say to me, why are you so demeaning marriage? Are you saying to us, don't get married? Never, I'm not saying that. Marriage is good. Marriage remains good throughout the remainder of this spell of time we're in between creation and the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Marriage is good and honorable and to be upheld. But my point is this. The happiest and most celebrated human marriages on earth can only ever be temporary pale reflections of the true marriage, the real marriage, the ultimate marriage, the eternal marriage, the never-ending marriage supper of the Lamb, of the Bridegroom, Jesus Christ, and his bride, the church, his people, that whole body of those that Jesus came from heaven to seek, and to save 
and to bring to himself. What we have in Genesis 1, Genesis 2 and verse 23 are the words of Adam when Eve is brought to him. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. The words are there in poetic form. He probably broke into song when he said these things. But even this hymn of praise and joy that Adam sings, the joy that Adam knows, is as nothing compared to the joy of Jesus Christ in taking his people to himself so that Jesus and his church should be united forever without interruption, without end, without disappointment. See how much the Son of God has loved us that the one who knew the highest honor and glory in heaven and was one with the Father and one with the Spirit, who knew that bliss of being that three-in-one from all eternity, he chose to come into this world. To sinners like me and you, to, to woo us, to draw us, to attract us, to, as it were, to propose marriage to us, to be our exclusive husband, to be completely devoted to us. Oh, we need to see these things. How many songs down the years have been about romance, love, Eternal, never-ending devotion. I will always love you. Eternally going to be yours. That, that sort of theme. How many of them are, how many songs like that could you think of if you wrote them all down? Many, many songs like that. Why? Why? Why is that, do you think? It's because you and I are crying out for love. We're not rocks. We're not islands. We're not self-contained little dots here and there in the universe. We want other. We want company. We need friendship. We need community. We crave society. We don't want to be lonely. You think of all these songs craving that intense love. And then you think about how many relationships turned out not to be what they perhaps promised. And how many of us or our friends or people we know have been through very hard times and it's been disappointing and sad. And there's something in us that cries out, it should be better than this. There must be more than this. Is there more for me? Can I find ultimate true love? And the answer is there is one and only one whose love is infinite and everlasting and never weakens. And he never grows tired. He never goes off you, never goes off me and says, I've had enough of you. I'm tired of you. Your husband, Jesus Christ, 
Let me introduce you to him today if you don't know him. And if you do know him, have you forgotten that he is a devoted husband to you? When you go through the whole Bible, how prominent this theme is, that the Lord God is the husband of the people he came to save and our most intense need to be known and to know and to be loved and to love is only met in the one who came to seek us, to be his bride forever and ever, to be satisfied. Psalm 16 ends with these words, doesn't it? When I awake, I will be, Psalm 17, isn't it? I shall be satisfied with your likeness. I will behold your face and be satisfied with your likeness. I will look on the face of Jesus and that will be the most supreme joy that man or woman or boy or girl can ever, ever know. And do you know him? Do you know him? You were made to know him. He came into this world that you and I might know Jesus Christ, whom to know is better than life, better than anything else. Let's pray together. Oh Lord our God, we thank you for your presence with us this morning. We thank you that you are that God of community, the Father who loved us, who purposed all things, who intended this great plan of creation and redemption from the beginning, the Son who basks in the love of the Father, who is the delight of the Father, whose will it is is to always do what pleases his Father, and who comes into this world so obediently and willingly to seek and to save people like us. And the Spirit, he who is the Spirit of life and of faith and of truth, who is at work in us and among us, so that if we know any joy, any reality, any spiritual substance, anything that is true of you, your Spirit is revealing that to us. O oh Lord our God, Father, Son, and Spirit, make your home in all of us. Draw us to yourself. May we know the Lord Jesus Christ to be that bridegroom to us. May we understand what that means. May we be overwhelmed with the sense of amazement that one so holy and pure should set his love on sinners like us. And yet he does so. The cross proves it. The blood shed shows the depth of that love for such as us. Oh, work in our every heart here today, we pray. We ask all these things in his name. Amen.